Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. We also got a new whiteboard. That's what I was joking at. Uh, Jerry got it as a Christmas present for me, and I got a bigger one for our new space, and then it came in like a day, and I was like, well, here we are. So hopefully I can write better, and you'll all be happy. For those of you in the back, I'm sorry, so you can't see it. Uh, we're going to be in John 6, so you can turn your Bibles. Uh, we got a lot of scripture to cover, and so I'm going to read most of it. So I would just encourage you to pull that out in your phones. we got Bibles in the back. Nick would love to hand you. We promote thievery. You can steal that, take that home. Uh, I'm going to be reading out of the NET version. And uh, John 6 would imply that we've been reading a lot before this. We're 12 weeks into the book of John. While you're getting there, the book of John includes uh, a really unique account of the story of Jesus. So there's four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were all in sync, uh, like the band, and they wrote similar things. John is sort of out on his own, and he is like, I am going to write my own uh, kind of attempt at this. And so it's very poetic, lots of symbolism, lots of stories that are not including the other ones. And so we've been going through that, and it's been beautiful. And the main theme of John that we will see and we've been capitalizing on is this number, seven. Seven in this culture was a number of perfection. Um, I know that uh, many of us um, have seen in the Bible the the number seven in lots of different things, and that's kind of what it's getting at. And so John has seven signs, seven like miracles, things he does that he focuses on, and then seven discourses or seven teachings. The seven teachings are essentially... Uh, just kind of in in congruence with the signs showing that Jesus is fulfilling the perfection of the law, of the teachings of what the Jewish people were following, and the power of God. And so we're going through this whole uh, book. As you can see, we're in the fourth discourse we're teaching today called The Bread of Life. Um, But before we get into it, it's important to know the context of where we're at because the last three weeks and then this next week are all kind of in the same tension for the the people that are following Jesus. Uh, Two weeks ago, I taught on the feeding of the 5,000, which if you know, uh, 5,000 men, so close to 15 to 20,000 people in this desert wasteland across on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. There's no food. They take a little boy's lunch, and they just make it feed everyone. Uh, Tons of food. It's remarkable. And that is a sign. And the people from that are so pumped for the handout, that they're like, this guy should be king, right? Who doesn't love a free handout? Um, And he, Jesus, in his Jesus self, pushes down the opportunity of, of influence being a king, and he flees away to, to be in the presence of his father. And, and, then he, uh, and then last week, my brother-in-law Adam taught wonderfully on the stilling of the sea. So the disciples get in a boat, they cross over the lake to the city of Capernaum, which is the northwest side, and I'm, I'm mirroring it, so it's here to here. And Jesus stays, prays alone, and then he meets them on the water, and he's walking on the water. The depths of the Sea of Galilee are close to 200 feet. So if you're wondering, was he just like, in a shallow area. He was not. Uh, And he walked on the water, and there's this big moment, right, for the disciples. None of the people know this is happening, and so they get to the other side, and then this is what picks up our context of the people being like, where is Jesus? So in verse 22, this is chapter 6 of John, it says, the next day, the crowd remained on the other side of the lake where they were, realizing that only one small boat had been there, and Jesus had not boarded it with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. 
Other boats from Tiberias came to shore near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor the disciples were there, they got into boats, and then they came to Capernaum looking for Jesus. Quickly, Capernaum is just this city on the north side, big fishing city. It's where most of Jesus' ministry took place. Jesus was, grew up in a, a town called Nazareth, which is several miles e, uh, west of Capernaum. And I, I've told this before, it's important to remember, uh, you know, this is not a big area. Like, the Middle East is not that big in terms of Israel and where everything's at. And also, the, the cities weren't that big. Capernaum is a bigger city, and that's like twenty to 50,000 people at this time. So Jesus is not like this, you know, he's not in New York City with the 1,000 people of his name. He's, you know, he's known and does lots of ministry in Capernaum. So the safest bet for them was to go to Capernaum. But 20,000 people, some taking boats, some just walking around the Sea of Galilee, which was a few miles to this city, was this massive, almost like colonist community, trying to find Jesus. They find him in Capernaum. And when they get there in verse 25, they found him on the other side of the lake. They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, when did you get here? Because they're like, how did, this, how did this dude get here? Like, we didn't see him walk by us. And Jesus replies, ignoring them, I tell you the solemn truth, which means I'm very serious. Listen to my words. Uh, you are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate all the loaves of bread you wanted. Do not work for the food that disappears, for the food that remains, but for the food that remains to eternal life, the food which the Son of Man will give you, for God the Father has put his seal of approval on him. So, here he's, Jesus does this a lot. He just like immediately cuts straight to the heart and the desires of a person. And, uh, and all these people are coming around the lake, taking days off work. Maybe they don't have jobs. They're sick. He, they want to be healed. All this type of stuff, right? Following Jesus. Jesus, how did you get here? And he's like, you are only here for another handout. It's pretty brutal. Um, and he's right. Uh, one of our uh, uh, German theologians, Johann Lang, says it this way. He says, uh, for these people, instead of seeing the bread... In, see, seeing in the bread that he produced the sign of power, they had seen in the sign only the bread. And so it's clear that they had they'd seen this miraculous sign. They want to make him king, but they don't really care about the spiritual implications of the sign. The reason why John and us call these signs and not just like miracles is because the point of a sign is to point to something deeper. So the, the miraculous in itself is miraculous, but Jesus is not just doing, Jesus did not come to the world just to feed everyone. Food. Like, he's not just along John Silver's, you know? That's free. And so he, he has a deeper reality behind, why am I giving bread to all these people? And they're like, we just kind of want bread every day. I mean, that'd be nice. Like, wouldn't have to work, wouldn't have to pay. Be pretty great. And what they're doing is, I mean, they're just basically like most humans. They're crass materialists. They show up to this presence of God on a church on Sunday, and they sit in a seat, and they want something from the production like, maybe you do want a free coffee today. We will give you one. You're welcome. But maybe you're like, I want to worship. I want to feel good. I want a teaching that stimulates my brain. I want to be around people that look like me. I want to be, I want to feel good for checking off Sunday off my list, my list on my week. Like, there's, there's tons of reasons why we come here that are just consumptive and about ourselves. And these people are no different. They want what Je- the power that Jesus can provide. They don't want Jesus. And he's just immediately like, this is why you're here. Now, the people, of course, are, are in this tension because the physical reality is he is doing something for us, but they know there has to be a spiritual reality behind this because you can't just create food out of nowhere. They know there's something going on with this guy, and they're trying to figure out who is Jesus truly. And so in verse 28, 29, they say, what must we do to accomplish the deeds that God desires? Jesus replies, this is the deed God requires, to believe in the one whom he sent. 
So if you notice, he redirects their want of him and his miraculous signs, and he says, here's the true food that comes from the Son of Man, the bread. And then they say, what do we got to do to get this? Now, this is a very common question in the Jewish culture because the Jews were surrounded by 600 or more laws that were like, this is what you do in these confines to be able to be in right standing before God, what we call Yahweh, the Old Testament, God the Father. And so Jews were surrounded by this, inundated in this culture, knew all the laws, tried to follow them. When they didn't follow them, they had sacrifices and atonement for that. And so they're like, okay, teacher, what, what laws do you want us to do? What laws are really important to you? What laws do you want to add? That, that was a common perspective of Jewish people following a rabbi. It was the teacher came out with a new spicy take on something, right? Um, and at this time, there had been rabbinic tradition where basically you became a rabbi, you would take your own interpretation of the laws, you would add things to it, subtract things, and then people would follow certain rabbis. That's kind of how it went. Kind of like today, you follow certain denominations, pastors, whatever. And so they're like, what, are, what, are, what, are, what do we need to do? Because they're probably still thinking this guy's probably a prophet. He's got power, clearly from God. But, he, but the son of man, like, what does this mean? Son of God, like, he's not God. God is God. Yahweh, no, one true God, Yahweh. And so they're like, okay, well, what do we need to do then? Jesus responds with, you don't do a bunch of things. There's one deed that God requires, and it is to believe. To believe in the one whom he sent, which is Jesus. Now, this is interesting that he used the word deed, because deed would imply some sort of action. We believe that, that salvation, that faith, it's by grace alone, means that there's no work that we can do to achieve it. And so this is a bit of a confusing statement by Jesus because it feels like he's like, well, there's one thing you got to do, believe. Now, we could argue whether that belief is like a work. Is it like, can you just do belief? Um, but this is where I want to get into the tension of this because this is, I think, so, like belief is one of the most important words in the New Testament. It's used 244 times, and this is the crux of our faith. Like, what is, when I ask you, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Like, what does it mean to be a Christian? You say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? Typically, you respond um, with a, a sort of modern interpretation that would, would imply, this is the phrase, is intellectual assent. Meaning, I've arrived in my brain that, like, the things that Jesus said happened. Now, some people could argue, like, what does it mean to believe in Jesus, meaning did you believe he was a human and existed? But at this point in modern society, we have archaeological and historical evidence that Jesus was a person. No one would doubt that he wasn't real. It's just, was he the Savior? Did he have power over sins? Did he die and resurrect? Did he do these miraculous signs? That's the argument, even if you're agnostic or atheist, is Jesus was real, was everything he did real, or did people write about it and fabricate it, whatever. So... Intellectual assent in the Christian world is, oh, I believe in Jesus. It means I believe typically in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's kind of what we say. And that's almost always assumed by this intellectual assent, meaning we believe in our minds that that's true. That is a fact. That is what we're placing our faith into. And faith would imply that there's like some tension there, right? Because we all know we haven't seen Jesus. We didn't watch it happen. So there's like a faith in it, right? There's a blind faith, if you will, of not having seen it, but maybe trying to see the power of God in our lives or... Uh, being compelled by the love of Jesus, right? all these different things. But this is essentially what we boil faith down to. The problem with this is it's not accurate to the first century and how they understood it. And it's also just a terrible way to live because what happens is if this is all your faith is rooted in, you read some passage in the Old Testament, you can't reconcile it, and then all of a sudden you're having a faith a crisis, faith, like of crisis, right? You're just like, I don't know, God's nice anymore if he's real. And and, and you, your, your faith and your level of faith is always indicative of your thoughts, right? 
And it's a dangerous place to be because half of the Bible is full of people doubting. <laughs> and those people, like David, I don't know about you, man, after God's own heart, more than half his Psalms are just like, I don't know, God, are you here? Are you real? Are you going to come through? And then at the end, it's this sense of belief, right? So the tension of that is messy. The American church doesn't like mess. We try to tighten it up. We just say, if you say this phrase, good to go, forever, right? We know that in the, in the walk of following Jesus, that it's hard. You have your doubts. You have your struggles. You have your dark seasons. You have these questions. Is God really here? And so what I want to do is I want to reframe how they saw the idea of belief, and then I want us to show our kind of understanding of it today. And I've done this before. Maybe you've seen it. If not, it's new. So the word belief, okay, is... The, the Greek word pisteo, it's actually the verb form of uh, pistis. That's Greek. Okay. And uh, the best way to describe it in a definition is implies an action to commit one's trust, to think to be true with confidence, or fidelity and faithfulness. And so that's the best way to describe the word it's used 244 times in the New Testament. Anytime John talks about belief, faith, Jesus, be- believing in Jesus, he's using this word. Now, the problem with this is, like I said, we take this and we just believe, like, if our brains subscribe to the belief of it, then we have belief, right? The problem is, is that the Hebrew people, the Jewish people at this time, they, uh, before the, the New Testament's written in Greek, primarily like 95% Greek, a little bit of Aramaic, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and... They use this uh, word, which is called lev, which we translate as heart. And so uh, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people have what's called the Shema. It's their prayer. They prayed two times a day to the Lord. It says, the Lord our God is, is one. Listen, love the Lord your God with all your mind, soul, heart, strength, all that kind of stuff, right? That's where we get that idea. Jesus affirms that as one of the greatest commands in light with loving your neighbor. And, and, and what we do is, we in this culture today, we take belief as an intellectual thing, and then we have this like heart thing or this soul thing. We use the word soul. And soul is a really weird word today because no one really defines it. It's just kind of like, well, it's like this thing that you can't cut someone open and see, but it's there, but it's, it kind of affects your conscience, but it, you know, it does in its spiritual reality. Like Scientists hate the word soul because they just feel like it's really squirmy. Um, and it kind of is. Like When we say soul, like what do we mean? But in the Shema, the very same phrase, it says, love the Lord your God with your heart, it also says your soul. Your soul is your nefesh, which is a fun word. Nefesh, okay? And what nefesh means is essentially all of you, everything. It is not, like if I was to say, like, love the Lord your God with your nefesh, it would mean everything about you, everything. Your physical body, your thoughts, your heart, your mind, all that kind of stuff. The problem is, is that in the first century, they didn't really understand how your brain worked because they didn't have modern medicine, and so they assumed that your heart was basically the center of, like, everything. And so they, there was four meanings of your heart. There's the physical, which they knew you had a real, like, a heart, a beating heart that kept you alive. That was real. They knew that. Um, then they also believed that the heart was where your will came from, your power to make decisions and to do things. They also thought your thoughts were in there, which were like, well, that doesn't match the science. But thought your thoughts were in there. They also thought your emotions were in there. Okay? So... This is how they would think of the heart. And so when they say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, it's all your stuff, all of your stuff. And then at the end, the word strength means muchness. So literally just love God with everything. That's what they're saying, right? And so when Jesus says to believe in me, he's, he, he's speaking in such a way that he's kind of talking about this, this idea. And if you look, intellectualism is only a small part of what they would understand as the heart. Now, if we go into today's 
world, I like to talk about soul because I think soul is most accurate. There's many components of our souls. There's, it's, it's our nefesh, it's our whole being. And so what we do as a church and the modern understanding is we combine this into three parts. So we combine the soul into basically three, three sections, which is feeling, thinking, and doing, or heart, head, hands kind of thing. The reason why I don't like to do that anymore is because we all know that your heart isn't actually holding any thoughts. Um, so it'd actually be more accurate to say, this is your body, this is your left brain, right brain, and this is your left brain. So that's how your brain works, if you're wondering. Um, so suffice it to say, we're like, okay, what are we getting at here? Just because you wear a cardigan doesn't mean you can be a professor, okay? What are we getting at? What does it mean to believe? What is Jesus telling us to do? What is he telling us to do? Here's what he's telling us to do. You go to, a, you go to an amusement park, and you say, wow, look at that cool roller coaster. And let's just say you haven't seen Final Destination. And you're like, that'd be great. I would love to ride that and not fly off it. And you're like, I bet that they engineered it so that people don't fly off it. I think I have a 99.9% trust that that ride will not kill people. And great, I believe it. And you'd be like, okay, well, that's cool. But like a first century Jew would be like, what do you mean? You can't just say that. Like if you believe it, go ride on the ride. And you're like, well, no, no, I don't want to do that. You're like, well, then your belief is trash. It doesn't mean anything. It has no weight. When you're a first century Christian and you decide, I want to become a Christian, I believe in Jesus, your entire life was commanded to be different. You didn't just get to say, well, I'm a Christian, but when I go to work, I kind of want to steal from you. Right? You didn't get to do that. And now in this world, we, in the modern world, we kind of get to play this game of like cultural Christian, then convictions just sort of being in this weird tension based on who we're around and whatever. It's just, they just didn't even think like that. It was just all kind of one. It was your whole muchness, yourself. That was what it meant to believe in Jesus. So in the same way of saying, I believe that the engineers designed that roller coaster to hold me and I understand physics and I get all this intellectual stuff, belief is you getting on the ride and riding the ride and hopefully not dying, right? That's the trust part. Same as with, you can have all these fun facts about the ocean and how deep it is and how powerful it is, but you don't really get it until you just get thrown into the ocean in a storm. And then you're like, oh, okay, I get it now, right? It's this objective versus subjective reality. And the Christian faith in the American world is so much tighter when we talk about objective, this is truth, this is true. But then what happens when we're all human and we struggle and we have doubts and we, we have assumptions about God or we, God's not doing what we want him to do and then we just like have this crisis of faith and a Jewish person be like, no, it's just all together. Like, you have intellectual doubts, but we still have a heart that can be attuned to our God, and we still have disciplines, and we still do things that are the way of Jesus that promote this idea of following him. There are times when the disciples, when they said yes to Jesus, which meant, I will walk behind my rabbi, that's what it meant in that culture, meaning I will literally walk behind his steps in the sand, that they were walking behind him, and they're like, this guy's crazy. I don't want to do this. I don't think anything's going to come of this. And they do it, and they learn from that, and it builds faith, and that's a part of their entire belief of Jesus and who he is. And so we kind of have to move away from this whole like intellectual obsession. Now, is it important? Absolutely. Like We need to believe the things of God and his Bible is truth in our minds. But all of this is super important. And I've talked about this before. If you only have one of these, you're really spiritually inept. If you have two, you're still missing it and there's still dangers. And so the goal is a holistic idea of faith. Our journey of spiritual formation as a church is trying to get you to kind of absorb all three of these and work on all these and some of you have, you know, different biases towards things being certain or easier, but this is what we have to look at. So when Jesus says, to believe in me, to receive life, this is what we're getting at, is this soul understanding of placing our lives in front of the Lord. The best way to describe it is, you've got your life in your hands, and instead of saying, here you go, Jesus, take, 
what you kind of want from my hands. It's giving everything over to Jesus and then letting him give you whatever he wants back. Maybe he does give you everything back. Maybe he doesn't. But there's a difference between saying, yeah, I believe you're good, but you can't have my stuff. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't reconcile. So from that caveat, let's keep moving on because belief in this passage is incredibly important. So he's talking about believing in him, the pisteo that we see, the, the action to take confidence in faith. And then in verse 30, they say to him, okay, cool, then what miraculous sign will you perform so that we may see it and believe you and what will you do? Our ancestors ate the man in the wilderness just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, if you are like tracking with the story, you're like, why are they asking this? Because you're like, just yesterday, they just saw bread appear from nothing and they all ate it until they were full. And now they're like, what miraculous sign are you going to do this time? And you're like, what do you mean? You just walked over here because of that. This, I would just be like totally just not happy if I was Jesus. I would be so angry. And he does a good job here because he's Jesus. But uh, they, their, their intentions actually are fair. They're, they're quoting a scripture that they knew as Jewish people. Hey, our ancestors were in the wilderness and they trusted in God. They trusted in Moses, their prophet. And Moses talked to God, and God is like, I'm going to make it rain bread from the sky, which we would all say, that's miraculous, right? And he's like, I'm going to do it for 40 straight years. And you're like, okay, that's a long time. Pretty impressive, right? So God makes it rain bread for the Israelites. They, they're literally fed on bread from the sky for 40 years. And you remember, like, they harvested six days a week. They weren't allowed to harvest on the Sabbath. And, and he just did this for 40 years. Imagine 40 years of doing that, half your life, uh, you win like Chipotle for half your life and you're like, I get to go to Chipotle every day and get free food. Pretty amazing, right? You start to believe like Chipotle is great. I've been eating it half my life. But in the midst of their 40 years, some of them doubted. Some of them tried to stockpile for their, for their 401k and their Roth to maximize them, right? And that was a joke. And, uh, and they're like, I'm going to put this in my pocket. And God's like, I'm going to turn that into worms. And they realize, wow, we have to trust God every day of our lives. These people are basically like, yeah, that was a pretty cool handout, Jesus, but like, God fed people for 40 years, so are you going to feed us for 40 years? You fed us one meal, and it was pretty average, sardines and bread. Like, can you do better? And what they're, what they're really doing, what they're really getting at is they're, they're, they're asking this not because they, don't, they haven't seen Jesus work, but because he didn't work in the way that they wanted him to. And I think that that to us is like, how many times have I asked God for something he doesn't do it the way that I want him to. And I'm like, well, screw you, God. I don't love you. Or I don't believe you're real. Or you don't love me. Or you don't care. Or your best is not the best that it could be. And you get angry with God. And some of you have walked away because of that. You have friends that have walked away because God didn't answer your prayers. Or it seemed like he allowed something that seemed completely against what would be good. And this is, I mean, this is no different with them. Like, like they have a selfish, consumeristic heart that wants what they want. They, they're saying, okay, give us this. But in reality, they don't really want what Jesus has to offer. They just want the physical food. And so often we say, God, I want this without seeing and trusting there's a bigger picture. I think about the allegory of the man who's trapped uh, on a roof. The, the area was flooding, and he's praying to God, like, God, like, please come save me. And so a guy comes in a rowboat, and he's like, yo, get in. I'll save you. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm waiting on God. I prayed to God. The guy's like, okay. And he, he rows away. And then a motorboat comes later, and they're like, hey, hop in. I'm here to save you. He's like, no, no, no. I'm waiting on God to save me. It's like, okay, and he drives away. And then the helicopter comes in. It's like, hurry, you know, the water's creeping in. Like, jump on the ladder, take you to safety. He's like, no, no, I'm waiting on God. And then a few days later, the flood hits the roof, and the guy drowns and dies. And he goes to heaven, and he's like, God, where were you? And he's like, you idiot. I sent you a rowboat and a motorboat and a helicopter. What more do you want from me? 
you know, but the man had such a specific lens at how he thought God would reveal himself to him that he wasn't willing to, to see that he's not God. Uh, and that God has a much bigger picture in mind. Like maybe you're praying for, uh, you know, a rowboat, but God sends you a helicopter. Maybe he makes you wait on the roof longer than you want, right? Like there's these things that we have to reconcile with our selfishness that, that at the, when the crux hits, like, oh my gosh, do I believe in God or not? All of those things affect our perception of God and if he's real and if he cares, and these people are just not, they just don't want to perceive what, what Jesus is telling them about physical to spiritual. And so then Jesus tells them in verse 32, he cusses them out. No, I'm just kidding. He says, I tell you the solemn truth. He's just laser focused. I respect him. Uh, it says, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but my father is giving you true bread from heaven. So he takes Moses and he says, Moses, yeah, that's cool, but that was still not from him. It was from God. God is now giving you true bread. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so they said to him, okay, sir, that's great. Give us this bread all the time. This is really similar to in John 4, the woman at the well, who's like, Jesus, hey, I have living water. You'll never thirst again. And she's like, sign me up. I hate coming to this well every day. That'd be great. You know, like free food forever, like never being hungry. Sign us up, right? They're like, that sounds great. And they're still just, you know, consuming what they thought was the physical reality. Sweet, give us, tell us how to get this bread. This sounds great. And Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. This is the first of seven I am statements in the book of John. Seven, as we said, number of perfection. John drawing out seven I am saying Jesus is the perfection of God. And uh, this comes from the Old Testament whenever the Israelites were in captivity by, the, by Pharaoh. Uh, Moses says, okay, God, who do I tell him? that sent me, and God says, tell him I am. And Moses is like, that doesn't make any grammatical sense. You know? No, he didn't say that. But to us, it doesn't make any grammatical sense. Who are you? I am. You're like, that doesn't make any sense. But what it means is, it's exactly that. It's I'm everything. I'm Alpha Omega. I am all things. So by telling Pharaoh I am, it's this idea of I am God. And so in the same way, John weaves seven I am statements into this book. This is the first one. He says, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never grow hungry. The one who believes in me will never be thirsty. But I told you that you have seen me and still do not believe. Everyone whom the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never send away, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Now this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should not lose one person of everyone he has given me, but raise them all up at the last day. That last day is the idea of salvation for eternity, um, for this is the will of my Father, for everyone who looks on the Son, and what? Pasteo, in him, has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. Jesus is, is, is drawing now in the, hey, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Yahweh, me and him are one. My will is his will, and his will is this. And he brings in this idea of God bringing forth people for Jesus to be able to save, to not lose one. And, and he's able to do that through looking to him and believing in him. This is like kind of beautiful analogy. He's deepening his, his, his argument here. And so when they say that, though, it starts to create this tension because he's starting to basically say, hey, I'm God, and that in the Jewish culture is an absolute abomination. There's one true God, Yahweh. You can't say you're God. Or you're this, like even the Son of God was provocative. So in verse 41, the Jews who are listening, remember there's like 20,000 people trying to listen to this, either in the synagogue or in Capernaum, and they begin complaining, and they say, they mock him, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we knew? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? 
And this is, this is kind of the fun part about, I've talked about, this is a small city and area. Like, everyone knew everyone. And, like, Jesus of Nazareth, like, I played kickball with him. He was terrible. Like, there's no way he's the savior, you know? And, like, he, was, he makes wood things. That's not, you're not God. That just doesn't work like that. Uh, and, I mean, imagine if you had, like, you know, you had someone in your high school who you're, like, you know, they're just not going to, like, excel at life. And they, um, they take a job that's just, like, pretty average. And then they tell you, like, hey, I just want you to know uh, I'm going to be president. And you're just, like, that doesn't check out. You don't become president from IHOP. You know, like, it just doesn't, that's, there's, like, more steps in between that. And they're like, well, he was born in, he grew up in Nazareth. That's a podunk town. It's lame. Uh, there's no way, right? So this physical reality of Jesus, they just could not flip the switch. And I think for many of us, we would have a hard time believing uh, that so-and-so worked at IHOP and now wants to be president. We would, it would have a hard time to be like, okay, yeah. But they, he did all these signs. So they're in this like weird tension of he did these things. So what is he? What does it mean to believe in him? He's saying these drastic things, but we've seen these powers and we kind of need more to be convinced. And so they start arguing, they say this, and then he says, don't complain about me to one another. And then verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be all taught by God, and everyone who hears and learns from the Father comes to me. Not that any of you have seen the Father except the one who comes from God, he has seen the Father, but I tell you the solemn truth, the one who believes has eternal life. Again, I mean, he just keeps hammering it. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate in the, wood, in the man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that a person may eat from it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, and if anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, a couple things going on here in this passage. The first is there's this tension of, of the reality of human volition and God's involvement, meaning like predestination, Calvinism, Arminianism. Do I have the choice to accept Jesus? Does God already ordain it or predestine it for me? Am I just a pawn in the game? Right? Massive debate, massive conversation. I don't have time for it in this, but it does, gra- it does grace this conversation. So the best way that I can kind of sum this up nicely for the time we have is there is, there is no doubt that when you are transformed, when you are believing in Jesus, that the Spirit is doing a work in you that you could not do yourself. And so at, at bare minimum, when he says, the Father draws people to me, there's this idea that when they are experiencing Jesus, the true transformer is not their decision, but it is the Spirit enabling them and, and able to experience freedom in Christ and belief in him. And so that's that. I'm skating over a lot of debate um, for the sake of time, but... Uh, there's this idea that God is saying, like, look, like, you and your own prideful perception are not capable of understanding the things of God without the Holy Spirit informing you. Because your perception is so human and broken and selfish that in order to see the spiritual out of the physical bread, your hunger is so, so just obsessed with the next meal that you can't see the deeper spiritual reality that, that needs to be shown to you. And so the Spirit gives eyes to people to hear, to understand, and to engage in this. And it's clear that, I mean, even the Pharisees who knew the law better than anyone, they they had the thinking and the doing down pat. They didn't have this heart humility that was needed in order to trust in the work of Jesus. And, they, and Jesus says they're far from the kingdom. But then he says this last provocative phrase. He says, the bread is my flesh, which this is what will cause quite a bit of uh, hostility, saying that the bread is your flesh at a shallow level. These people are thinking like cannibalism. They're like, what do you mean? There's 20,000 of us. We all just supposed to take a chunk out of your arm? Like, 
You're going to multiply your arms? Like, what, what are we supposed to do here? Cannibalism, very, very frowned upon uh, in the Jewish culture. And, yeah, hard to believe. And, uh, and they're like, they argue with one another. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus says to them, I tell you the solemn truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. Okay, Jesus, the flesh was weird. The blood is extra, extra. Like, this is where we're like, let's peace out. Paul's actually going to talk about that next week, how provocative that was. But the, the blood idea is, is just so hard to fathom because in the Jewish culture, I mean, they were not, like, they were obsessed with the cleanliness around blood. How they did sacrifices, what blood they could touch. They could never drink blood. Very clear laws on not drinking blood. And they're usually like, yeah, come some have some of my blood. And they're like, I don't know about this. They're actually not like that. They're like, no way. It'd be like if you came here and we're like, hey, welcome to Contrast Church. We're so glad you're here. We'd like to love people. Also, within four weeks, you must have a Steelers tattoo right on your forehead. Just so we know you're in. And you'd be like, that's where I'm out. You know? And you go on Google and you give us two stars. Because you're like, the cult thing was weird, but the coffee was really good. Two stars, you know? But you, you don't, there's a point where you are like, I just don't, it's too much. I don't get it. And this is the point. And Jesus is kind of pushing the edge. He's being more and more provocative. But it's because he's trying to draw them into this ultimate depth. He, would, he could be more, even more provocative as he, as if he kept going because he's, he's like, this is the truth. And they're like, I don't know. This is the truth again with a little bit more. This is the truth again with a little bit more. After some point, you're like, he's just saying as much uh, provocativeness as he can because what he's trying to do is he's trying to say, you need all of me. And so some people take this passage and they think immediately, oh, bread and cup, right? The body of Christ, the blood of Christ spilled out for us. What Jesus enacted on the first or the last night he was with his disciples before he was betrayed and crucified that's not really what this is getting at. Now, does this have a lot of correlation? Sure, but he's not describing this for several reasons. One, he uses the word flesh. The word for the Lord's Supper in the Bible with Paul is always used body, never flesh. It's a very different word. Number two, Jesus never talked about this before. Why would he just all of a sudden be like, last night we're, I'm going I'm to teach this thing that I've already taught hundreds of times, but we're going to only record it here. It wouldn't make any sense. And the third thing is we know that this doesn't really save us. Communion is not a saving, like we don't like drink it, we're like, good to go. We don't believe that. Communion is, is a symbol. And so he's saying, when you, when you take of my flesh and you drink my blood, you, you are saved, you are believing, you are of eternal life. And so there's a difference between what he's talking about here and something like this, which I'll talk about later because we will take that. But it's different. And so what he's getting at here is important if you read, if you read in verse uh, 54. The word eat in verse 54, this is the kind of starts to poke at the tension of what he's getting at, is actually better translated munch or crunch. Sounds like a cereal. Therefore, take some of my cereal and put it over milk and, and eat it. You know, it's like, but, but it's this kind of like, uh, it sounds barbaric, but what it's getting at is this deep gnawing and chewing on. And we use this word today in the same way. You know, you said, hey, I'm really getting into this author. I love C.S. Lewis. I'm eating up all of his work. Right? You're like internalizing it. It's just like becoming you. It's your obsession and your desire. And I'm just eating everything he, make, he writes up. Right? I'm just chewing on it. Right? We use that. I'm chewing on the thoughts. We use this phrase. They used it in the same way back then. The Torah was oftentimes synonymous with the symbol of food, eating your food, nourishing your spiritual body, eating the food, the laws of God. And so to say crunch or munch on this is not that unheard of. The problem is, is that he's saying crunch and munch not on my teaching but on my flesh and my blood. And there's this very tight intimacy that he's kind of trying to provocatively 
pull them out. If he would have said, eat my teaching, they'd have been like, cool, great. But he's like, eat my body. They're like, whoa. But what he's really getting at is, like I said, this is the whole have ears to hear, that the Spirit revealing to them through their prideful heart what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is saying, look, if you want life in me, we got to live together. You have to consume all of me in your life, internalize, this is Jesus' teaching, internal to external, right? Your heart to your, the rest of your body. You have to internalize all of me in such a way that belief becomes just a part of who you are, your wholeness, your nefesh in a muchness, your strength, your meod in Hebrew, all of it. And if we read in a couple weeks, read, we'll read John 15, which is the story about how Jesus says, I am the vine. You must remain or abide in me as the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But those who abide in the vine produce, produce fruit. Jesus is the vine, we're the branches. When you look at it, a vine, you're not saying, oh, there's a vine and there's a branch. You say, there's a vine. It's all one. It's all the same thing. It's all connected. And Jesus is saying, this is the reality of belief. It is not just a set of laws that are static and that are distant from your life. It is me, as uh, Katie said in the beginning, right? It's the, the veil being torn. It is the coming together of one flesh. It is, that's what marriage is, is a symbol of one fleshness, of union, of the deepest intimacy that we can experience on this earth. It is us eating and consuming Jesus in such a way that it is all one with us. And the, the, they got so caught up in the law and the physicality of it, and they had this agenda of what they wanted Jesus to do that they missed one of the most beautiful teachings that Jesus gives us of the, the depth of intimacy that we must accept as him, as the bread of life. So as I invite up Jacob here uh, to get us into a time of formation, I want us to chew on this, uh, this idea. And uh, so we have four things we always do every formation time. First thing is we have people in the back. We'd love to pray for you about anything and everything just between you and them. Uh, the second thing is we do have the bread in the cup in the front and the back. It's gluten-free and grape juice. And that is a belief that we engage in as a community for t- probably two main reasons. First is that we do it individually to remind ourselves that we need Jesus every day, that his sacrifice on the cross for us was the saving of our sins, that it, it, it nourishes us and our souls. The second thing why we do it together is that it reminds us that everybody that takes this is all on the same playing field, all sinners before God, all missing perfect righteousness, and us all taking it together as a community. So we'll give you time. If you believe in Jesus, that's a symbol you can partake in, and we'll give you time to take, partake that whenever you want on your own. Uh, the other two things, we have a bringing box in the back. We call it bringing because we don't believe in giving. We believe in bringing because all of it is already God's. You're not giving anything that isn't already his. And so we bring back to God a uh, portion of our income as a form of worship, obedience, and trust. So you can do that there as well. And then the last thing is I have a few reflection questions because we're going to give you some time to do all of these things. Here are the questions. Number one, how have you been like the crowds and wanted more or wanted differently for Jesus to prove himself to you? Number two, what is Jesus communicating to you through his teaching today? Number three, what would belief look like for you today to trust him and his life-giving power with this type of a framework? Number four, are you truly eating and consuming Jesus in your relationship with him? So we're going to give you some space to reflect on this. And uh, what I love about this is just, it's so simple. It's radical, but it's so simple. Just belief. Belief in Jesus and who he is. Uh, and we get to be an attorney with him now and forever. It's so simple, but yet people got so caught up in their own selfish desires and pride and lens that they missed a very simple idea that has 
eternal impact. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.